Hello, I'm Kelvin. And I'm Fiona. Welcome to this week's episode of Fly in the Wall. Before we get started with the interview with Elliot Williams, make sure to follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We also love hearing from you, so feel free to send a message to flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. Our next guest is Elliot William, who is a CNN legal analyst and currently works with the Raven Group, doing consulting on politics and legal affairs. He has also worked in every branch of government, so he's incredibly qualified to talk about uh, our discussion for today. Hello, and welcome our esteemed guest, Elliot Williams, the pod. Hello, hello, Fiona and Kelvin. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. So to start off with, you've been in all three branches of government. Now you're a CNN legal analyst. So take us through your career. What are the highlights? What are the highlights? It's all just one sort of extended low light. um, And I'm just sort of happy to be here. But for the purposes of completeness, I will say that I was, I I went to law school and journalism school. I did the two together after college. Then I was a federal prosecutor. I clerked for a few federal judges. I worked for Congress. There's a legislative branch. And I was a counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee to this guy named at the time Chuck Schumer just this little unknown upstart fella from New York and then was uh, in the Obama administration for all eight years uh, working on legislative affairs and now on the outside I'm at a consulting firm called the Rabin Group and as you'd mentioned Fiona CNN is a legal analyst and um, Sirius XM is a guest host and I write a lot as well that's me in a nutshell. You see Austin Powers. Um, this literally is me in a nutshell. Uh, listeners can't see this, but I'm sort of curled up into a nutshell right now. But that is quite literally me in a nutshell. Yeah. So you ended by talking about your time at CNN. Let's actually focus in on your uh, media expertise. Okay. So uh, last week was the uh, confirmation hearing for wait, wait, two, weeks. two weeks. Yeah, two weeks ago. <laughs> well, you know what you should say? When's it going to air? When is it going to air on Sunday? Yeah, on Sunday. This Sunday coming? This Sunday. Uh, what I what you would say is um, this week she's going to be confirmed to the court. Mm, thank you. It's not my first day at the rodeo. Yeah. Um, let's do that, and then we can talk about coverage last week or whatever. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Now. So actually, that talk about your seat. T- yeah, okay. You're good. Actually, I'm glad you ended with talking about your time on CNN because we're really here for some of your media expertise and expertise on the court. I thought you just wanted to talk to me um, and just to get to know me personally. No. What am I to you, Kelvin? Is this this is really you just want to talk to me about about famous people on TV. But that's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, We're good. We're good. We're good. It's okay. It's okay. You are a means to an end. So let's continue. Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm here for being a means to an end. Let's be clear. Let's be, look, I have two little kids um, that uh, I basically only exist to get, provide them bowls of Cheerios periodically. So I get it. I get it. So, so this week will be the confirmation of Kentanji Brown Jackson. So uh, we wanted you to talk a little bit about your immediate reflections concerning the hearings. Yeah, the hear- So the hearings were maybe a week or two ago, and now the final... The last few votes, there will be, I think, three votes on her this week, likely ending in her confirmation, I believe, on Thursday, perhaps Friday, but when the senators are getting on their planes to go home for Easter recess. 
look, they were emblematic of where the the fight over Supreme Court nominations has gone, which is they've just gotten more hostile and partisan over the last 20 or 30 years. Were she to have been nominated back in the 1980s or 1990s, she would have had 97, 98 votes. That's just what happened and what happens. Um, Antonin Scalia, Ruth Bader Ginsburg were confirmed by overwhelming majorities, really huge. And now uh, nominees are lucky to get 52 or 53 votes. It seems like she's going to get, she's already got guaranteed 51. So all the Democrats plus Susan Collins of Maine. On the day that the three of us are here recording this, we haven't yet heard from Mitt Romney or Lisa Murkowski from Mitt Romney from Utah, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. They might vote for her, but that's that's about the ceiling. And the some of the acrimony and this was and this was Republicans holding their fire and not really tearing into her personally that hard, but it was pretty acrimonious and it's only going to get worse from here, I think. And so you mentioned Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney. Why do you think they would vote yes or are considering voting yes? What are their goals? Look, that's an excellent question, Fiona. And it, it really comes down to political incentives. What incentive, how does someone or an elected official benefit from taking a step? Now, I think it's fair to say the right thing to do is vote for Katanji Brown Jackson, even if you don't agree with what you think her judicial philosophy might be, just looking at her resume and background and the historic nature of the appointment. It's hard to find a more qualified person to sit on the Supreme Court. Right. So then the question is, well, what's the blowback to a senator for voting against her? And there might be a political cost. Right. And if someone, for instance, is up for reelection in a tough state and they might face um, a primary from the right, a more conservative person challenging them in the primary, maybe they maybe maybe that's the reason the thing that leads them to vote no. Um, the simple fact is most Republicans are going to vote no. Now, it seems that the this question of incentives is just getting harder and harder. Some of it's fundraising, some of it's media, and everybody's going to be blasting their tweets and, and their Instagram posts, lighting up any Republican who votes for this nominee. But it's a really dark place that nominations have gone. And we could do a whole podcast on the reasons for that, who started it. A lot of people think that Democrats back in the 1980s, 1987, did this by blocking someone named Robert Bork from the Supreme Court. Um, Republicans point to Merrick Garland um, uh, at the end, 2016, at the end of the Obama administration as that being the worst. But there's a lot of dirty hands. And I think a lot of this comes down to the the coarsening or the partisaning. I just made up a word. Look at that. Look at that. Jeez. Called, called Oxford, call the folks in England. Heard it here first. You fly heard it wall. here first. Fly on the wall, fly on the dictionary. That's what I'm talking about. But, um, but you know, it's, it's, it's emblematic of where we are today. I think. I actually like your discussion about thinking about the different incentives of the senators. Actually, I think we like should zoom out a little bit more and think about the stakeholders in this situation. What are the different parties affected by these confirmation hearings? 
And what are their thoughts, wants, and goals? Oh, that's an excellent question, Kelvin. I So it's a few different things. It's, well, the American people, and we want to have a court that the public has faith in, and Americans are, are very rapidly and consistently losing faith in institutions generally. That's the Supreme Court. And frankly, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is in a little bit of a pickle right now with his wife having engaged on January 6th matters and texting the White House Chief of Staff. Setting aside the particulars of what she did or how it affects him, all this touches on the integrity of the court and can people have faith in and trust the institution? And Americans, Americans don't trust Congress. They don't trust courts. They don't trust the media. Americans don't trust a lot right now. So the American people, in terms of having a court in which they can have faith, um, that's at stake there. But look, there's the president of the United States. He's got an interest in, in not having seen the process blown up. Right. And maybe even he doesn't even have an interest in getting her confirmed to the court, which is sort of a almost a, a snarky, sinister way to put it, but just not losing and just getting getting his nominee on the court, whomever that might be. One, two, Senate Democrats have an interest in a smooth process. Senate Republicans have an interest because they're in the minority and just don't have the votes to sink a historic nomination, but they have to build a political narrative. And what is the political narrative that came out of these hearings? It's number one, Democrats are soft on child pornography and law and order, and Democrats want to pack the Supreme Court and change our core institutions and critical race theory and men swimming in women's sports. I mean, this is the kind, and you're building a national political narrative because you can't really knock the nominee down. And it's almost like game recognize game. I'm not going to hate on it because that's just how this process works. It's it's sad, but if you can't defeat the nominee, you ought to use the process as a means to create a bigger political narrative. Now, again, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that may not have been the case, but that's where it is now. And then the nominee herself has an interest in being true to who he or she might be in terms of these are the words I want to come out of my mouth. This is the story I want to tell the American people about who I am. And I also want to get that life seat on the Supreme Court. And so regardless of whatever her narrative or her story is, I think she wants that black robe. And so you mentioned people losing faith in government, the court, and also the media. So where do these feelings come from and how can we restore faith? Oh, my Lord. Um, that's a whole thing. Um, it's it's a lot of things. It's, I think, maybe a general populist bent in the nation right now. Um, I think it's media lack of faith in media is driving it. People don't know who they can trust anymore, I think. Um, when it comes to institutions, I think the last president maybe didn't create the problem, but certainly compounded it. Maybe, you know, whether Trump was the, the, the problem or the symptom, the sickness or the symptom, one of those two things, but between you shouldn't trust Congress, you shouldn't trust the courts, all the news is fake. Now, he was tapping into something that many people in America feel, but he he had one of the he had literally the biggest megaphone um, on the planet, except for Chris Rock, maybe, but the biggest megaphone on the planet, literally. Did. So, um, but there's a ton of research on this from the Pew Research Center about how much Americans are just losing losing faith in institutions, and some of that. 
who knows? It, you know, and I don't really have the answer to it. I don't really have the solution. I mean, I do think that, and something I've said to the students here at Georgetown a lot is for everyone to diversify the sources that you get your media and information from. Twitter is not a news source. There are news outlets and entities that provide information through Twitter, but it's not a news source. And people treat Facebook, your uncle's posts, even if even when he shares an article from um, Democrat, what is that? Uh, D- Democrats, whatever, uh, Occupy Democrats, or whether he s- shares something from Breitbart. Yes, it is an article, but is an article with a huge slant, and a lot of people get their information that way. And to some extent, that is part of what is coarsening um, and further dividing people and leading to their faith in institutions. But it's a bigger question than any of the three of us can discuss today. I do think the information consumption and where you and the diversity of sources you hear from is something every a little step everybody can take to do better. So actually, we're going to do something you're going to love. We're going to talk a little bit more about you and your interests. No, I'm, I'm not going to love that. I'm actually, no, no, I don't like that at all. No, what the hell kind of, who are you to d- tell me what I'm what I'm into? I actually, you know, it's kind of funny, and I was telling somebody about this this morning. The day we're recording this was Admitted Students Day at the McCourt School, and I spoke at it. And I was telling one of the other folks here that I, not unlike many other people with public personae who are on television or whatever, am actually a raging introvert. Yes, it, there's a big difference. And actually, ambiversion is the term where people sort of split. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, being able to present publicly, but also not really liking to talk about yourself or or deriving energy from crowds. I just don't mess with that, man. But OK, I'll let you profile me as somebody who wants to talk about myself, Kelvin, and, and we'll go from there. OK, maybe I might have taken that in a weird direction, but that's yeah, awkward but, now. It's a little weird, but no, well, we're don't good. worry. I'm going to immediately uh, gravitate somewhere. Do else. it. Do it. Do it. Yeah. So that still relates to the question I was going to ask. Yeah. So you mentioned there has been a lot of changes in like the way Supreme Court nominations have been done over time. You've also mentioned that there's been a lot of changes in like the state of the media as well. So I guess my question would be, what motivated you to go to both law school and journalism school? And do you find that those same motivations are what motivate you now? That's an excellent question. I, so in part, both areas are areas in which communication is important, um, how to speak, how to think, how to present information. And those are things I enjoy and have thrived on. They play off of each other. They're very different. And what leads to success in one or the other uh, is both very different. Um, I'd always known, look, um, you know, I was an art history major as an undergraduate. Um, I, I, I've always known I was going to, I knew that I was going to study the humanities in some way, whether it was art history or English or philosophy or something like that, but probably go to law school, probably. Um, and then journalism school just sort of happened while I was there. And so it all kind of fit together. Um, but all each industry and each institution could use work. And I think the exercise for, and certainly for folks in a wonderful place like Georgetown who are learning about government and politics, that's your challenge in addition to not drowning when the ice caps all melt um, and, and consume the whole planet is how do you restore faith? Um, And, and it's not a kumbaya statement of why can't we all get along? It's, can I trust the people 
or bodies that provide me information. And that's a very, very huge task that you all are going to be left to fix. So at Georgetown right now, you're leading a discussion group as one of the fellows. So give us a quick pitch on your discussion group. My discussion group is the law and politics collide, which wins. And it started for me through a number of CNN segments and over and people's reaction to them over time. This is over a couple of years of having done it, particularly anytime you say the words Donald Trump. And there are instances where this political figure is in the legal system, but people confuse those two things. And Often, the mere fact that someone might be unpopular or undesirable to you politically um, doesn't mean that you can necessarily use the criminal justice system to go after them, right? And there's just huge tensions in where law and politics collide. Trump is the obvious example, but a couple of the big um, race and crime and civil rights matters that have come up over the last several years, Chauvin, Floyd, um, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse, that was my last discussion group a week ago. But this whole question of what makes a criminal defendant a political cause celeb and set aside his acquittal or ha what the murder statute or the gun possession statute was in Wisconsin. Why is this man, he's not a kid anymore, he's a man under the law. Why is he tweeting about the fact that Joe Biden won't call him back? Why is he appearing on Tucker Carlson? Why is he appearing in public with Donald Trump? And or as a pitch man for this coffee company that that's linked to firearms causes? Well, because it's a political matter as much as it's a legal one. So why is that? And what creates that? So we've been we've been working through that over the course of this semester. Yeah. And how do you think that those topics you address in your discussion group uh, connect with the discussion we've had today? Uh, only in so far as it all kind of fits together in law and politics and communications. And a lot of these issues can't, they're different and we'd like to think of them as different, but they coexist and they are all like, you know, I keep using the word institutions today. They're all institutions that need to thrive and survive in a healthy society, right? In a pluralistic open society. We need a working rule of law. We need, I think America kind of, at least in theory has it right, that we have a free press and so on. But do we have a truly independent press? I don't know. Do we have a truly apolitical judicial system? I don't know. And that's kind of some of a number of the things we've talked about today really come down to how much faith that should we as Americans have in these systems that we have. And we end all fly-on-the-wall interviews with a lightning round. So, some more fun facts about more you. More fun facts. Oh, right, because you know what? That, that's exactly what I love talking about. Because you love to talk about yourself. I do not love to talk about myself. <laughs> I want to talk, I, I talk about just NASCAR and watermelon are the things that I want to But it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But you said you were an art history major in college. So, what is your favorite piece of artwork? I have a bunch of favorite pieces of artwork. I would actually say... Um, Captive by Auguste Rodin, um, which is a sculpture of a head coming out of a big, big unhewn rock. And the reason why it's it's fascinating, it goes back to Michelangelo, actually, and the idea that artwork exists inside 
of everything, right? It, the rock, if, if, if you have a big piece of marble, there's, a, there's an artwork inside there and it's just the, the act of the artist to excise it and to find it. And he has captive, which is literally this face coming out of the rock. It's calling back to Michelangelo. If you watch the Beatles documentary, Get Back, Paul McCartney is bang, banging on the piano at one point and he says, look, this is a piano. The entire body of human creation musically is in this piano you just got to find it and pull it out it's a really powerful statement about sort of creation and how art works wow that was really deep i was not expecting that well well done our next question is what would be your top book recommendation my top book recommendation remains this land is our land by a writer named suketu meta it's about migration um and why people migrate. He's an Indian immigrant himself, or his family is, and he goes to Queens, which also gave us Donald Trump, the single most diverse county in America, which is really fascinating, though, because Queens gives us Donald Trump and Archie Bunker, um, this character from the 1970s. This, um, But this being from a diverse county created people who were unsettled by diversity. He talks about sort of what it is that makes people unsettled by a, a migratory world. And then he gets, he ends on this question of, well, the world is getting hot. The global North made the world hot. Um, and it's going to get worse for people in the global South, the Caribbean and Africa. What's the global North going to do about it to make things better. It's a really interesting book. That sounds great. And finally, lots of students at Georgetown are really interested in going into politics, media, the law. So what is one piece of advice you would give your younger self? Nothing matters. Literally nothing matters. At a prestigious university like Georgetown, it is easy to assume that uh, life and advancement is a series of inputs and outputs. And if the things I learn on this internship will serve me better um, in my next job and so on. And I would say that's 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 really not the right way to go about it. Um, internships, life, classes are really about getting to know yourself and the things you want to do. And that's all data, far more than, well, you know, the ladder I'm climbing. It's much more of a jungle gym and finding yourself. I know this having done it for a bunch of decades, but to be candid, um, most things you think are relevant and important really aren't. And the most thing, and the things that really are important in the workforce and in life are, are you a good person? Do people find you to be trustworthy? Do you apologize when you're wrong? Are you competent and do you say the things you're going to do? And learning those things are far more important than any internship, any job, any class you can take. Um, and it's a long process. But I just think it's very easy to say, what's the one thing you need to know to succeed in law school? Or what's the, how do I get your job one day? And it's like, well, you'll never have my job, you'll have your job, right? But will that job make you happy? And um, it's very important to sort of prioritize your own contentment and health and well-being than what's the thing I need to do to get to the next step. I feel like this is our most philosophical lightning round. Yeah, I, I did a lot of Ritalin before uh, coming <laughs> on here, so I'm, I'm really focused. Should, should you be admitting that? <laughs> oh, we had a great conversation with Elliot Williams. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having wall. me. Yeah, yeah, thank you. No, thank you. So it's it's so nice to talk to you. I'm yeah. so grateful that you have this platform and that you use it and talk to different people and hear their thoughts. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. I definitely really enjoyed interviewing Elliot Williams. I thought his 
interview was especially topical with the confirmation hearing that's going on right now. What did you think, Kelvin? I thought he was very witty. I honestly liked the aggressiveness. <laughs> it was fun. It was, it was fun. very fun. Yes. Very fun. But uh, if you want to hear more from our guest, make sure you register for his geopolitics discussion group, Politics and the Law Square Off, which wins on Tuesday from 2 to 2.30. Also make sure to check out the Geopolitics newsletter for the sign-up link or to Google Geopolitics Discussion Group. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to follow us on social media at flyonthewallpod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as always, you can email us at flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. See you next week. See you next week.